The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Ahmad Thomas. I'm the CEO of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and I'm very excited to be here moderating today's program. I'm pleased to be joined by best-selling author David Pogue and renewable energy expert Wei Tai Kwok to discuss their practical ways to make smart choices for the climate upheaval ahead. How to Prepare for Climate Change, authored by David Pogue, offers deeply researched advice for how the rest of us should start to ready ourselves for the years ahead. From what to grow, what to eat, how to build, where to invest, and how to prepare your children and even your pets. He also provides wise tips for managing your anxiety, as well as action plans for riding out every climate catastrophe. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions as well. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be sure to get to them later in the program. Thank you, David, and thank you, Wei Tai, for joining us. I can't wait to kick this off, and David, I will turn to you to get us started. Well, thank you, Maud, and thank you for doing this. This is quite generous of you. Uh, this is, of course, a volunteer operation for all of us, so very nice of you. Uh, I understand that some of you are viewing this as a video and some of you are listening to it as a podcast. For those of you who can't see a visual, uh, I'm stunningly handsome with flowing mane of thick blonde hair, chiseled jaw. I'm incredibly good looking. Okay, I'm going to uh, share my screen really quickly uh, for those of you who can see. Um, my book is called How to Prepare for Climate Change, and believe it or not, I don't think there's ever been anything quite like it, I say in all modesty. Um, and it all sprang from this quote by John Holdren. He was Barack Obama's senior science advisor. And he said, when it comes to climate change, we basically have three choices, mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. We're going to do some of each. The question is what the mix is going to be. Well, mitigation, you've heard about to death. There are hundreds of books and articles on mitigation. That means how to stop climate change, how to take public transportation, don't eat red meat, fly less, have fewer children, uh, turn down your thermostat, use LED bulbs. That's all really important. Uh, we, we need to keep doing that. But what I find weird is that nobody's ever said anything about the second part of Holdren's formula about adaptation. Adaptation means deciding how to cope to what's already upon us, to what's already changed. In other words, the climate has already changed. We, you are not going to see the weather patterns of the 1980s in your lifetime or your children's lifetimes, no matter what we do now. That part is over. Um, I don't even like the term global warming, by the way. Those of you who've been sort of <laughs> observing the news in the last few years, you know it's not just about hotter summers, milder winters, like take Texas this February. I mean, it was a freak blizzard of historic proportions. They don't have snow plows and salt trucks in Austin. They don't, they don't have them. They've never needed them. People there don't even own winter jackets. 110 million people lost power. 164 people died. The costliest storm in Texas history. But it's, it's not, it's not global warming. Okay. It's, it's freak heat waves and freak cold waves. It's freak flooding and it's water shortages. 
It's droughts and intense rains. You know, it's too much and too little. It's all the stuff you've been hearing about, wildfires, hurricanes, biodiversity loss, the explosion of ticks and mosquitoes into new areas, loss of crops, and human migration out of areas that are no longer livable. But it's also this weird stuff that doesn't seem immediately connected to a changing climate, like smaller beaches, more expensive chocolate, more kidney stones, smaller goats. I love that one. And this is kind of wild. You might have heard of Tornado Alley. It's the four states down the center of the U.S. where most hurricanes used to happen. Tornado Alley is shifting to the east. It's growing because of climate change, which is taking it out of these basically empty plain states, low population plain states, and into Texas, Tennessee, um, Alabama, states with a lot of infrastructure. A lot of people live often in kind of flimsy housing. So really damaging and scary. So a better term for all of this, I think, is climate chaos. I hear that, or climate breakdown. I heard I heard one the other day that I like. It's global weirding. <laughs> anyway, uh, the point is things are getting worse and worse. I know we all had a lot on our minds in 2020, <coughs> pandemic, <coughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, nature didn't care. The climate continued to get crazy. Emissions continued to pour forth. Um, it was the hottest year on the planet ever recorded. It included the hottest day, the hottest temperature ever recorded on the planet, 131 degrees in Death Valley. Um, also, the heat wave we're having now is breaking all kinds of records. The hottest temperatures ever recorded in Canada, 121 Fahrenheit, Oregon, 116 Fahrenheit, and Washington State, 118. I'm sure you guys know about the wildfire situation. Um, the, the Last year, the 2020 wildfires on the West Coast build, burned 5 million acres. That's the entire area of Connecticut and Delaware and Rhode Island, if those states were completely wiped out. Um, overall, the wildfire areas are growing. Um, we used to get a huge fire, like over 1,000 acres in the 70s, uh, a fifth as often as we're getting them now. Um, I live in Connecticut. I'm, I'm sp speaking to you now from Connecticut. And if you can believe it, last week, we had poor air quality, like really, we had air quality warnings in Connecticut. And the sky was hazy, and you could even smell it on the East Coast. It's because of the wildfire smoke from Oregon, 3,000 miles away. It's unbelievable. As you may have read also, we're now getting wildfires and heat waves in freaking Siberia, <laughs> the cold tundra of Siberia. Um, and hurricane season is just about to get underway. Uh, last year, we had so many hurricanes that we ran out of alphabetical hurricane names. You know, Arthur, Bertha, Cristobal, Dolly. We, we got up to Z and ran out, so they had to start adding uh, Greek letters to name the hurricanes. Um, and it's not just the United States. I mean, these freak storms and, and flooding is happening all over the country. Flooding is a big one. I mean, flooding, like Washington, D.C. in 2019 got 6.3 inches of rain in two hours. Nebraska lost 20 million acres of farmland from the flooding. And this is this is a hilarious little anecdote. Not a lot about cl the climate crisis is hilarious, but in Kentucky, there is a tourist attraction called the Noah's Ark replica. It's a life-size wooden replica of Noah's Ark. And they actually got flooded. <laughs> they filed a million-dollar lawsuit with their insurance company to reimburse them for flood damage to Noah's Ark. Okay, insert your own punchline here. So the climate is, is changing every place in the United States. Uh, one of the chapters of my book that I get asked about most often is the chapter called Where to Live. Um, 40 million Americans move every year, and increasingly they are taking into consideration where can we move where we won't get slammed. So, you know, you got heat waves in the lower middle parts of the country, you got hurricanes on the East Coast, uh, droughts and water shortage in the entire Western half of the United States. I mean, serious, tragic droughts and wildfires in the left third of the country. 
So uh, like, like if you look at the, the reservoir formed by the Hoover Dam, that's Lake Mead, it's only a third full now. And 25 million people used to get their water from that reservoir. So you want to avoid situations where there's drought. So the answer to where to live is the Great Lakes area. All those grand old cities, Buffalo, Cleveland, Madison, Wisconsin, Chicago, Duluth, they don't have wildfires, they don't have hurricanes, they don't have sea level rise, um, they don't have much in the way of heat waves, and they have plenty of fresh water forever. Um, I, in the book, I actually went through some of these cities, and and there's more to it than just climate considerations, of course. There's like, is there a culture? Will you like the people there? What's the cost of living? Can you get a job? Things like that. Uh, but the winners were Madison, Wisconsin, gorgeous city, constantly rated the best quality of life in the country, built on five lakes, Burlington, Vermont, which feels like a seaside community, but it's not the sea. It's Lake Champlain, this 500 square mile lake, uh, really good cheese, maple and ice cream there. Um, and Buffalo, uh, it's right on Lake Erie. They have great medical facilities. Everything is really cheap. And uh, the chicken wings are excellent. Um, the book also covers things like uh, preparation for a hurricane, wildfire, flood, ticks and mosquitoes, and so on. Um, I, 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 the book is 620 pages long. So um, the, the Commonwealth Club is really persnickety about limiting our talk to under 11 hours. So I'm, I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights of, the, of these emergency chapters. Here's one thing you can all do like right now. You can all download this free app. It's from the American Red Cross, and it's just called Emergency. And it's really cool. You put in your address, you know, your kid's address, your parent's address, and then you can put the app away and forget it. If any of 57 different kinds of emergencies come your way, climate emergencies or, you know, nuclear leaks and that kind of thing, this thing will come to life and start squawking to get your attention and give you directions to the nearest shelter what really gets me is when people die in these hurricanes and these wildfires because they didn't get warned. They didn't know that the wildfire was coming. And so they die in their homes. There's no reason for that to happen. So get this app. Uh, I would make a go bag. Did this with my kids. It was fun. It was like a scavenger hunt. A go bag is like a backpack you keep by the front door. If you live in California, you probably know a lot of people who have these already. It's got two days of supplies in it, food, water, first aid, that kind of thing, so that you can grab it and go when you hear the evacuation command instead of fuffering around in your house trying to waste time gathering up stuff. One thing that a lot of these disasters have in common, whether it's wildfire or hurricane, is losing water. And I know the common wisdom is fill your bathtub before the storm, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know about you, I'd probably rather not drink out of my bathtub so I wanted to point out that you have water supplies already in your home, fresh, clean water that you're probably not thinking about. Uh, your hot water heater, for example, there's 40 gallons of fresh water right there, even if the town water gets contaminated. You have water in your toilet. Every toilet has three or four gallons. I'm not talking about the bowl, unless you're a golden retriever. I'm talking about the tank. You've got fresh water in there, and you've got water in the pipes of your home. Uh, the other thing that happens a lot is power failure. This happens in all the California wildfires because guess what? Your cell towers and the electrical uh, plants are all part of the same grid. And when the grid goes down, you lose power and cellular service and you can't, your food goes bad in your refrigerator and so on. So the solution there, of course, is a generator. It doesn't have to be terribly expensive. Home Depot has gas-powered ones for about 250 bucks, Or for, for 15 bucks, you can get a hand-cranked generator from Amazon. It's got just enough power to recharge your phone. Uh, it also has a built-in emergency radio and uh, flashlight. Or if you've got the bucks, like for $5,000, you can get what's called a standby generator. These are the ones that are installed permanently beside your house and kick in automatically when the power goes out. Uh, just one last thing on my end. Um, the, the, this book has been called the first uplifting book about climate change. Now, it, it was my editor at Simon & Schuster who said that, but still, <laughs> totally unbiased. Um, and, and that's because what's depressing 
about the climate or anything is feeling like the situation is bad and you're helpless to do anything about it. So by taking action, by preparing yourself, by making yourself more resilient, you sleep better at night because you have fought the depression that comes from learned helplessness. So the book ends with a chapter called Where to Find Hope. And if you had asked me before the most recent election, I would have had a much harder time with this. But there is a lot of hope. Uh, United States greenhouse emissions have, in fact, dropped substantially in the last few years, not because we're such great citizens, but because natural gas, fracking, has largely replaced coal in many places. Um, There were those four years where the federal government did nothing about climate change and, in fact, excise the words climate change from federal websites. Um, But even during those four years, 24 states had this thing called we are still in. They remained committed to the Paris Agreement goals, um, even though the federal government was not. So the work did not stop during that time. Uh, California was a founding member of that group, by the way. Um, Another thing that gives me hope is corporations, traditionally the biggest polluters, have now realized it is shameful to not participate in the decarbonizing revolution. 250 giant, huge corporations are taking the lead to go to carbon neutrality. Um, I mean, look at let's look at this alphabet. Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft all pledged to be carbon neutral or run on total renewable energy. Some of them have already. Amazon, two years ago, had no carbon reduction program at all. They weren't addressing climate change at all. And what's cool is that corporations are being beset on three sides. First of all, the populace, right? Their customers are complaining about them being polluters. Investors are putting pressure on them. They don't want to invest in polluting companies. And increasingly, their own employees so that's what happened with Amazon is the, the, the employees almost had a, a, a revolution, a mutiny, and they forced Amazon to change their tune. So now Amazon pledges to be carbon neutral by 2040. They're buying 100,000 electric delivery vans. They're spending $10 billion on climate science. They're building massive wind and solar farms and so on. So there's a little taste of what I've been doing for the last two years. Uh, there really are two reasons that you should prepare yourself and your family for the changing climate. One is the obvious thing, right? You'll be ready when something bad happens to your area. And it will. I can't tell you the date, but bad things are coming. And second, you'll feel better knowing that you are prepared. You're feeling less vulnerable. Um, I do believe that decarbonization will come. I think it'll take 80 years or so. But all you have to do is look at the young people. We're going to die off. They're going to run the country. Um, And they will decarbonize. Younger people care a lot. So until then, I recommend that you prepare. And I have one last slide here. Because this is a virtual event, I can't actually be at the Commonwealth Club. I want to make you all the following offer. Um, Since I can't sign your book in person, if you email me, Here's my email address, Pogue, my last name, P-O-G-U-E, at me.com, M-E, Pogue at me.com. I will hand sign an autographed sticker, a book plate, and mail it to you so you can slap it inside your copy of the book. Anyway, thank you for your time, and hello, everybody. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, I, I got my copy right here. I got to reach out and get uh, get that sticker signed. I'd offer a It'd couple worth of comments. worth a fortune on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> a couple comments, then I want to make sure to bring in uh, Wei Tai. Uh, the first I'd say, surprised to see 2020 got one star. I would assume it would have been zero, but uh, I don't know what the rating system is. And then secondly, just a comment I had. To me, the book, uh, I might not even recommend reading it chapter by chapter. You know, I think you go through your first couple chapters and then you can see for Californians, you know, flooding is probably not top of mind for us. But you can look at wildfires and other pieces of the book. So it's a nice resource that you can just flip through chapter by chapter. I don't know if if that's by design or how you recommend reading it. Maybe I was intimidated by the 600 pages, but, but, you know, that's the way I went about it. (laughs) But Wait, Ty, we want to make sure to pull you in here. And uh, I see we may have an actual physical tour 
of, of where you yes. are. Yes, uh, David, fantastic book. You know, I buy a lot of climate change books, and it wasn't until I got your book that my wife, it's the first book that my wife grabbed out of my hands, and she wouldn't let me read it until she'd gone through it. So uh, that that's a huge compliment to you. Um, but let me uh, uh, pivot and just say that in preparing for climate change and thinking about your, your, your final thing about hope, you know, what is it that we can each do to take action and then uplift ourselves? And so I want to talk about what I've done and my wife has done with our very own home to get rid of all of our natural gas appliances and to power our home by uh, with electric, all electric appliances powered by 100% renewable energy. And uh, my story begins really like three years ago when I, I thought doing something like that would be very difficult. It'd be really expensive. It would take a lot of time um, to convert to become a decarbonized building. But the more I actually read about it and I learned about the latest technologies, I learned that my assumptions were wrong, wrong, and wrong. It actually wasn't that the case. And so um, I want to share with you that we did uh, move forward to decarbonize our home. And so I'm going to take you on a quick walking tour of my house. I'm here in my kitchen, and we're going to, I'm going to share with you just a couple of my experiences of having done this. And so the first stop is going to be over here at my um, cooktop. We used to have a gas stove, which we loved. We cooked a lot of stir fry and so forth, but uh, we bought this sort of sight unseen. We never even used an induction electric cooktop. But when, when you ask some friends who uh, also cook Chinese cuisine, can you actually do some stir fry? They said, oh, yeah, no problem. It works great. And so the key with these uh, induction electric is that you need to have a special pan that is a steel pan that a magnet can stick to. So, you know, this pan is going to work because this magnet sticks to it. And I could actually turn this stove onto high and put my hand on it and nothing's happening. I'm not burning my hand because really this stove inductions cooktops use magnetic technology, which causes the molecules in the pan to vibrate against each other and create heat. So I'm going to actually pour a little bit of water into this steel pan that I'm making here. And I'm going to bring this, uh, my computer up a little closer for those in the audience who can, uh, can see. And we're going to just see what happens with um, the water heating up here. And um, one of the great things about having induction cooking is that there's no open flame. Uh, there's also no combustion and air pollution coming out of this. And so it's, it's a bunch safer. And uh, hopefully the audience can see that you're, you see a little bit of boiling water happening already. And the steam is coming up here. It's making a bit more noise and um, going into robust boil. We found that these actually cook they're so efficient because the heating's happening in the pan. Uh, and let me turn it down to 50%. And you can see how responsive it is to changes of temperature. So, oh, so it's, um, it's not heating the, the air around the pan like a regular flame would? That's right. So the, the, the pan is actually, um, the, the heat is being created in the pan by the molecules in the pan vibrating against each other and creating the actual heat. So the pan is, is cooking the food. Uh, and one thing that I totally didn't know on this journey and as we, we changed to electric cooktop was the amount of indoor air pollution that my previous gas stove had because, you know, I, I would never put my propane uh, gas uh, grill in my house and run it, right? We don't do something like that yet. You know, how can we do that with our gas cooktops? And if the EPA regulated indoor air quality, which it doesn't, I think more than half of California's gas-powered homes would, would fail. Um, and so um, that was something that I learned and that uh, we, we really feel a benefit, the health and safety benefit of not burning fossil fuels in our gas cooktop. All right. So, well, let me take us to the next stop on the tour here, and I'm going to talk about heating and cooling of my home. In the past, we had a central air conditioning and, and gas furnace, uh, and we ended up taking all of that out. We took the ducts out of the attic and the ducts out of the crawl space below and uh, replaced it with a mini split heat pump system. And that's what you see over my shoulder here. And each of those mini splits is controlled by a remote control. I'm going to go ahead and point the remote control at the mini split and we're going to watch the vents open. And uh, this is currently set on 72 degrees. And what we're doing here is we're actually going to cool down the inside of my house because how does a heat pump work? It actually takes heat from inside my house and pumps it outside. It takes the heat out, thereby cooling my house. 
And one of the great things is that these products also work in reverse in the wintertime, and they actually bring heat from outside into my house to, to warm it up. Uh, the best thing that I learned is that they operate at 200 to 300% energy efficiency compared to my gas furnace that might have been 90% efficiency. And so we're definitely seeing how these new technologies are really much more efficient, uh, cost-effective. And uh, I, I, did I mention that I have eight of these units across my house, and so I'm able to just heat the rooms that I'm in. So, for example, at nighttime, when we go to bed, I'll go in 15 minutes earlier, turn the heat on in the bedroom only. And that means when we sleep at night, we're not heating the whole house like I would do if I had central heating, right? And so that's also yet another reason it's more energy efficient to go with uh, these uh, heat pumps. And so we actually feel a little less guilty now. We turn on the, the air conditioning and the heating more often than we used to because we know we're, we're really not wasting as much energy due to the high efficiency of it and also the fact that we're only heating and cooling the rooms that we're in. Uh, well, the next stop on our tour is my fireplace. Now, I, I hadn't ever seen an electric fireplace before. I thought that'd be something crazy. Um, and it's actually sort of hard to find uh, showrooms that showcase electric fireplaces. But let me show you the one I've got here. I actually retrofitted my former gas fireplace here. And um, with an electric log set, I'm going to actually use this remote control to turn the log set on. And we're going to just zoom in here. And you can see that the logs are use LED lighting to set up that amber glow. And then there's a fire, you know, fireplace flames in the back that are actually a projection image that is being projected there. Uh, I can also turn on a heater. And, and feel that there's a 1,500 watt, uh, sort of like a hairdryer type of power to uh, uh, emit a warm air here in, in front of the fireplace. Wait, Ty, is well. that giving off heat that's similar to what a real fire would give off? Or well, does not it, a real fire. I think it's, it's more yeah. gentle heat, but it's still a 1,500 watt hairdryer. If you put your hand on a hairdryer, it's pretty hot. So it's, it's a warm sensation. And, you know, again, I think the, the fact that my heat pumps are heating my house at 300% energy efficiency, uh, there's no reason why I would use 100% um, efficient radiant electric here when I could be doing 300% efficiency with my heat pumps. Wait, so, but, wait, Ty, so, so just to be clear, so how is that uh, saving the environment? How does that help with your energy consumption? Oh, so how is it saved by, by environment is because by m moving away from burning natural gas, which is methane, high greenhouse gas, and relying instead on electricity powered, generated by solar panels and so forth, uh, I'm no, I have a zero emission home. And I actually want to thank you, David, for an excellent segue into some slides that I wanted to share with the audience here uh, for the outside of my house, because we don't have time to go outside. But here's what uh, a picture of what it looks outside, the heat pump ductless mini splits I was talking about. I have two heat pumps outside to handle that. And I'm sharing a few pictures of what the bedrooms look like with the mini splits on the wall. Originally, my wife thought these things are going to look really ugly in our house. You better not put them in there. But, you know, after we did it, we, they, they, they look okay, and she doesn't mind so much. Uh, we also in, installed a heat pump hot water heater. Uh, we got a, a version here uh, called a split version, but they also sell single versions where the heat pump sits right on top of the other version. Um, and a lot of people are asking, well, how much did it cost you to do this way, Ty? And so here's a slide that uh, in total, it says uh, $56,000 uh, that we expended. Uh, the Half of the budget, $27,000 was for a ductless mini splits that I talked to you about. Uh, we also took the opportunity to do some energy efficiency measures for like $11,000. And then we had the heat pump water heater itself was $76,50. We did, uh, because we have wildfires out here in California, we used the opportunity to put in a ventilation and filtering system for 7200 And then that cooktop I showed you was 2500 bucks, and then the fireplace behind me, 4475 So um, now people also ask, what type of incentives did you get? And unfortunately, the only incentives two years ago was a $500 federal tax credit. Was well, not too much, but the good news today is just just in the last two years there are a lot more local incentives, thousands of dollars at least here in California in the Bay Area, and even new federal legislation being proposed in Washington as we speak that's trying to offer ten thousand to even fourteen thousand dollars for 
low and moderate income families to do uh, building electrification projects like the one you've just seen. So I'm really hopeful that this is the direction that we're headed as a society. And another question people ask is, well, what happened to your energy bill after you did the conversion? And so after I lived in my house for 12 months as all electric, I, I dug out five years worth of gas and electricity bills to compare my all electric home versus the previous four years. And the great news is that my all electric home cost about $900 a year to run compared to about $900 to $1,300 in the previous few years. So it actually cost about the same or slightly less to be in an all electric home for all the energy efficiency reasons that I was mentioning. And this all at the end of that project, I actually called up my local gas provider and said, please come away and take away my gas meter, which they did in just 15 minutes for free. So I disconnected from the gas grid. And that means that today my home is being powered by the 15 solar panels on my roof, which account for about 60% of my load. And the remaining 40% I buy from the grid uh, and I opt up to 100% renewable energy. And I must say, I never imagined that. By the way, this whole project took me only 45 days from the start of construction to completion to do all those retrofits. I never imagined that uh, in 45 days I could have a zero emission home. Because remember, I told you I thought it was going to be time consuming, expensive and difficult. And it wasn't. And so my message, what my learning was that really some of the barriers to taking action and preparing for climate change are really in our minds, right? And actually, the fact is that a lot of the technologies and solutions are out there. Sometimes we, we've got to catch up, I've got to catch up and learn more and mentally to um, get out there. So I, I want to encourage others to uh, also find that the solutions of preparing, it's not, not so, so bad. bad. Well, thank, thank you. you so much, Wei Tai. Thank you for that walkthrough. Uh, and David, uh, extremely informative presentation. Uh, let me start with the first question that is uh, really directed to you both. Uh, we saw practical tips from you, Wei Tai, David, your book is chock full of practical tips for individuals in managing uh, climate change and where we're going. What's the one thing that you would recommend individuals can do today uh, in terms of preparing themselves and their families uh, for climate change? You know, uh, I mean, the, the easiest, quickest thing is to get that app. So at least you have the, the notification. But the, the thing that will probably help you the most is going <laughs> to, you guys are all going to like shut off your YouTube stream. But it's about insurance. Uh, it, it turns out that most people's home insurance, you bought it when you just wanted something cheap to cover the basics. And it was years ago and you forgot about it. The world out there has changed. Uh, for example, um, I don't know if you realize the, what many of these climate disasters have in common is flooding. Flooding is on the rise something like 10x over 20 years ago in terms of the number of claims that, that FEMA gets for people flooding. Here's a statistic that I learned in working on the book that blew my mind. Eight of the 10 most flooded states in the United States are not coastal states. They're inland like Arkansas, Arkansas was the number one most flooded state. And it's because we're in this era where get drought, the ground gets hot, hard and dry. And it's followed by this torrential rain. The water has no place to go because the ground is hard and dry. So it floods our streets, our businesses, our basements. And the kicker is you don't have flood insurance. Homeowners insurance does not cover flood insurance. And more and more people need flood insurance. Um, it turns out that 40% of the American population lives in flood zones, but only 18% of Americans have gone that extra mile to buy flood insurance. So it's a total disaster waiting to happen. Uh, more and more people are sitting ducks every year, including, by the way, the federal government, which is basically the only flood insurer left. All the nationwides and the other insurance companies got out of the business because it's become such a money loser to insure people for uh, floods. And those of you in California know, they're also getting out of the fire insurance business. They're dropping customers in California by the hundreds of thousands because it's not a profitable thing for insurance companies to do. So you've got to be proactive. You've got to insure yourself if you live in a flood zone, which is everywhere, or a fire zone, which is the western half of the United States. 
So we have to have our insurance in order, get the insurance right, get the app from Red Cross, and essentially about being proactive, as you say, uh, at the more conceptual level. Uh, at, very at the, at the very least, that. get out your policy and read over the first page called the declarations page that shows what's covered and for how much. And you might be like, what? Why are we paying for that? Or what? We're not covered for that? I mean, I did it. I was astonished at how stupidly out of date my insurance was. Sure, sure. And Wei Tai, what is your suggestion or recommendation when you look at one practical step Right. A lot of people ask me, like, what's the one thing I should do? And I would reframe that by saying, you know, when I think about what I would do, uh, what I have been doing is really, you know, a lot of people try to think of what's the most important thing. And like, uh, and I sort of think there's so many, there are like a thousand things you can do. And, and like a th- 999 of them are in David's book there. Um, and everybody, all of us are different. So I would just say, do something, do the things that resonate with you and that maybe feel achievable and doable. And don't really set your expectations on like the most effective thing, because that might be hard for you. And then you may not want to do it, you know, uh, as compared to something that's easier. I, I've learned that just by taking small steps, one, one here, one there, and one at a time, that they all help to make me feel like I'm taking, taking action and alleviating that depression that David talked about in his last chapter and creating hope. And that hope and energy gives me more energy to do more ambitious things on the list. So I actually think uh, you can tackle, um, you know, start anywhere in the book, start anywhere on a list, but do the, tackle the things that speak to you and, and you feel are achievable and easy to do. Those are, I think, the best. That, that's well said, Wei Tai. And I know this is not a, a self-help book. Uh, it's obviously an extremely uh, serious topic. But as you just shared, Wei Tai, and I think one of the takeaways I've had from the book is the guidance is very good away from climate change. Uh, the mental health guidance, getting time outside, stepping away from the news, especially through this pandemic, I think all of those things are just good practices to follow uh, regardless. Uh, but the next question, and maybe, David, this is more directed to you, and we've got about 15 minutes, and then we'll pull in audience questions where, where those, those come in. The entire premise here obviously accepts that climate change is real, as we all acknowledge and the science bears out. Uh, but your book has a section talking about how you talk to people who do not uh, believe in the science or do not believe what's happening before their eyes. So my question is two part. Uh, the first is, uh, have we hit those aha moments for individuals in flood prone areas or fire prone, or you're sitting in Siberia and it's 100 degrees for people to actually see what is happening and acknowledge uh, broad base that climate change is real. Remember, you're in Connecticut. We're out here in California. It's a very different audience than some places across the country and world. So that's the first part. And then secondly, with the pandemic, with real issues of people trying to pay rent and and just survive through a challenging time, uh, do we take these threats as seriously as we should? I know it's a lot, David, but would appreciate your thoughts there. Uh, yeah, no, th- those are great questions. Um, I'm, I'm asked a lot about the climate denier question. Um, and in, in diving through this, all this research, and, and by the way, I'm not an expert on any of the things in this book, insurance or you know, emergency policy or flood insurance. Uh, this is all based on interviewing experts. And what I learned through this process is that the, the the climate denier thing is, I think, much more overblown than you might guess. First of all, what are we calling a climate denier? Are we saying that there are people who deny what they're seeing out the window, who deny that the West is on fire, who deny the drought that's making their grocery prices go up, that deny that Hurricane Katrina happened? I don't think there are people like that left. I really don't think that a denier is de- defined anymore as somebody who denies that the climate is changing. There are people who say, yes, the climate is changing, but it's not our fault. It has nothing to do with emissions and the greenhouse effect. They say that's baloney. This is all part of a natural cycle. And they're a little misinformed. It is true that the earth has gone through these roughly 100,000 year cycles of very hot and then to an ice age and then back up again. The difference this time is that the spike 
in uh, both carbon dioxide presence in the atmosphere and the temperatures of the Earth have gone way higher and way faster than they ever have before during these spikes. But anyway, the answer is, these days, that's what I would call a climate denier, somebody who says it's a natural cycle. But even that number is dwindling. Uh, The Yale Center for Climate Communications does this cool survey uh, every year of Americans. And among other things, they ask this question. It's like, do you believe that the changing climate is man-made? And in the most recent one, as of December, the number of Americans who said yes was 29%. That's the lowest number they've ever gotten from that survey. It's down 5% from the previous one. And for comparison, let me remind you, that 25% of Americans believe that aliens walk among us. So so 29%, I think we're doing okay. If we can get red and blue, you know, polarized Americans to agree all but 29% that this is a problem that we're causing and that we can fix, I think we're doing pretty well. Yeah, why not comment on the second part of your question, which was around the pandemic and the impacts. I actually think there are amazingly great learnings um, of how society responded to an emergency pandemic where we had days and weeks to do impossible things like stop all airplanes or everybody stays at home or everybody wears masks. I mean, things that we'd say were impossible. We actually did do it. Uh, We pulled together as a society quickly when it mattered. And I think that these are good uh, exercises to flex our muscles of uh, emergency muscles because we're going to need it for climate change, for preparing for climate change. And uh, it is an emergency that's unfolding fa- uh, on a, a longer time frame. So we, instead of days and weeks, we have years, not maybe even decades. But the good news is that we still have time to avert the worst consequences if we deploy some of the same preparation methods that we would do if we knew the pandemic was coming around. Now we know if the climate crisis is here, there are also things that we can and should be doing well in advance so that we can be much more ready uh, and even avert some of these uh, matters in advance. So I I hope to look at the silver lining of the pandemic as a way that society will stop saying we can't do that because it's too hard. No, the economy, you know, we can't harm the economy. Well, yes, we we can do these amazing things. As I sort of has said in my theme earlier, most of our barriers are mental in our own mind. And I think if we can just say, that to solve big problems, we have to change our minds first before we change our light bulbs. I think we could actually do a lot of things beyond what we imagine. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and I got questions flying in here. So I'll ask one more and start uh, bringing our audience members in. Uh, I want to make sure to speak about marginalized communities and communities of color uh, in America. I view my role as a business leader here in Silicon Valley as very important as uh, you know, speaking to and bringing a voice to those uh, who, who aren't heard. When we talk about climate, when we talk about environmental issues, there's a long history of the brunt of a lot of uh, less than ideal uh, circumstance around the environment being borne by those marginalized communities or black and brown communities in America. When we look at individual tips and the guidance in your book, David, or Waitai, just what you've talked about with your home, does, does, do you have advice, one, that is relevant or directed particularly to those marginalized communities? Or two, more broadly, if, if you don't have the resources uh, to, to invest, as we've discussed, what advice might you have for such, uh, such folks out there? Uh, first of all, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, chapter after chapter after chapter of this book, I came up against this, that the worst effects of climate change hit communities of color, lower income communities, first and worst, as one of my experts said. And um, she revealed all kinds of really horrifying historical reasons for that. You know, this somebody, when, when we're done, if you don't know what redlining is, dear audience, go Google it. It was a practice, an official practice of governments that put low income communities literally in harm's way in the industrial run down parts of cities. They're next to the polluting factories. They're on low lying ground that's going to get flooded first. And their homes are built out of flimsy materials. Well, the, the guy who talked to me about um, the tornado alley shifting east told me that 60% of the housing stock on the trailing edge 
of the new tornado, sorry, the forward edge of the new tornado, tornado alley are mobile homes and plywood homes. They're going to get destroyed by these, by these tornadoes. Um, anyway, so, so what did I do? The main thing I wanted to do was not make this a book about like how rich people can shield themselves from the effects. So the whole thing is that the most expensive suggestion in the whole book, you've already heard from me, and that's by a generator. Um, uh, but everything else, the app, the app is free and 90% of Americans have smartphones. Um, if you have insurance, looking over that is free. Um, choosing where you can cite yourself. If you have the opportunity to move, you know, you're getting a new job, you're getting out of college, you're getting married. Um, that's free. A lot of it is just a change in mindset. It's just a change in how you think about these things. Um, and in the bigger picture, though, the, the only group that can really do a substantial job in addressing climate change while addressing inequality is the government. And I would say, if anyone's doing it, it's the current administration. Every time Biden talks about climate change mitigation, he says, and we have to do it fairly over and over. It's baked in to every step they're taking. And I'm, I'm greatly hopeful about that. Well, I also hope I got to mention it. The new uh, EPA administrator, Michael Regan, he's uh, incredible. And the way he speaks so authentically around environmental justice issues, uh, frankly, really bringing a spotlight uh, to them that really was not here uh, just over the last four years. Uh, I really see his leadership as being vital to these conversations. Uh, Wei Tai, the first question I've got here from audience members is for you. Maybe I'll, I'll pull that in here because I want to ensure we hear from all of you out there following this very engaging conversation. Wei Tai, are you planning to purchase battery storage for your solar energy? About how much would that cost if you were to do so? And is it worth it? Very, very detailed. That's a great question. question. A lot of people wonder now that I have a solar uh, and I'm connected to the grid, would I buy um, uh, batteries? And that cost could be anywhere from ten to twenty thousand dollars more if I wanted to just have like ten thousand if I wanted less resources in an emergency, or twenty thousand if I wanted to run everything in my house in an emergency. But the answer is no. I actually haven't held off on doing that for now. uh, On the one hand, because uh, if there's a power outage, I I feel like I'm going to eat peanut butter sandwiches and apples and bananas and, you know, ride out the outage without electricity. Uh, I don't feel I need electricity 100% of the time. Uh, And the other answer to the question is because I I think that our electric vehicles, um, I have a Nissan Leaf, and more and more cars in the future will be able to have uh, tap into the battery that's in my EV to power my house. So that's called vehicle-to-grid infrastructure, which has been talked about for a while. But I think given the wildfires that we've seen more, I I hope and I see on the roadmap for these EV companies to be able to plug right into my house so that in these emergencies, I would just tap into my car. And uh, so I don't want to put batteries, uh, hang them on my wall, $20,000 of battery on my wall. I already have some batteries with four wheels. And so that's um, an area which I think in the next two to three years Uh, we're going to see um, that connection being made. Excellent. And this is a question for David. Uh, David, interesting to know the preferred places to live are around the Great Lakes, but don't they also have snowstorm and extreme? Wow, do you hear that? This is uh, live TV for you. I've got some sirens that passed by, but I'll start over, David, to make sure you heard me. David, interesting to know the preferred places to live are around the Great Lakes. But don't they also have snowstorm and extreme freeze winter problems? Or will these be small issues to deal with in the future? You are exactly right. So the the number one choice that I mentioned in the book is Madison, Wisconsin. Just to give you those numbers as an example, the winter cold, the cold numbers for the winter, that is the lows, are now five degrees warmer than they were 20 years ago. And by 2050, they're expected to be 11 degrees warmer yet. So the funny thing about the changing climate is that the planet warms more and faster the farther north you go. That's why wildfires in Alaska are now a thing and why we're getting those 100-degree heat waves in Siberia. It might seem that's really bizarre. Isn't it cold up north? And the answer is less and less with every passing year. 
So yes, we. This is of course a very cold area, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and and Cleveland and so on. They do get cold in the winters, but not as cold as they used to be, and not as cold as they're gonna be. Well, uh, Minnesota is a beautiful state. I, I love it in California. Uh, Wei Tai and me out here, but. Uh, you know, I, I think we answered that question well, and I, I want to make sure I turn to another question that's pretty pointed here. Uh, I hope you're wrong about it taking 80 years to decarbonize. I'm hopeful it's more like 40 to 50 years. Is this too ambitious or could it happen? I think, well, I'll, I'll go first. Um I have a great, I probably have more hope than a lot of climate experts, having seen all the changes that have been happening just in the last two years. But I also remain a cynic of human nature and politics. And here came, you know, Joe Biden with these elaborate $2 trillion plans to do fast, quick decarbonization infrastructure. And, you know, it's getting blocked and blocked and blocked already. So I do want to moderate hopes for the future. And there are some industries that cannot decarbonize. For example, the airline industry, there's no such thing as an electric passenger plane that can carry more than a couple of people and they can't fly for long distances. So there are certain things that we're never going to be able to de decarbonize um, without great breakthroughs in technology. So I do think it'll be gradual, but I do think it's off to a good start. So yeah, I'm hearing 60 to 80 years from, from the realist experts I've talked to. Wait, Ty, do you have any feedback around that? Are you as optimistic? I, I will say- I'm a little my... more optimistic because uh, <laughs> I learned in my, uh, I, I used to work for the world's largest solar panel manufacturer at a time when solar panels cost like $2 a watt. Um, and we had like the best roadmaps with the most qualified consultants helping us to get down to a dollar a watt, which we thought might be by 2015. We had the best minds in the room. And guess what? We didn't just get to a dollar a watt. It, uh, the whole industry got to more like 50 cents a watt, and now it's down to like 30 cents a watt. Uh, these, are un these are things that we just had no ideas of how quickly we could move to um, get better technologies to beat coal and fossil fuel technologies. And so I, I hope that it won't take 80 years or even 40 years because the alternatives are just going to be cost competitive. And so you don't even have to believe in climate change. You just have to believe in making more money or saving more money and uh, having that drive the decision. Yeah, yeah I that's, certainly that's share. Part of the, oh, sorry. Go sorry. ahead, David. Go ahead. David. Oh, I was just going to say, that, that's a part of the, the whole discussion that I, I don't feel gets enough play in that, um, you know, you will create jobs by decarbonizing. Everyone's like, ooh, coal miners, coal miners, so sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry about the coal miners, but there are already more jobs in the whole solar industry than in, in the entire coal industry. I mean, yes, it will involve retraining. We have gone through this, but, and, but ultimately it'll save you money. It'll make money. Um, oh my gosh, if they manage to get a carbon pricing scheme where polluters pay into a fund that gets sent into the citizens' bank accounts. That's a bipartisan proposal right now. Republicans and Democrats think that people would love this. The more you pollute, the more you pay into a fund that goes to the voters' pocketbooks. I mean, who wouldn't love that? So there are some huge financial reasons to economic reasons to look forward to the decarbonization. All we hear is like, oh, so sorry about the coal miners. There's more to it than that. Yeah, at Silicon Valley Leadership Group, we've got about a 15-year track record of supporting carbon tax. Uh, and frankly, when you look at the big infrastructure uh, package that's been talked about in D.C., our view is that uh, we would ask, why are we not hearing more about the carbon tax when you look at yeah. a potential revenue offset uh, for all the reasons you elucidated, David? Um, I want to touch on finance a little bit. Most of my career has been spent in investment banking. You speak to this in your book, David. We've spoken about this over the last couple responses about the financial impact, which also gives me hope about those net zero numbers coming sooner than we think, because I believe there really is a double bottom line for our companies or potentially a triple bottom line. And I think it's the right, uh, right thing to do and right thing financially for shareholders. What investment decisions or financial uh, changes should individuals be making 
if they're looking at managing their money or investments in line with a strongly held set of values to support the climate. Well, <laughs> you're pushing my, my hot button here. Um, there is a chapter called Where to Invest uh, to Prepare for Climate Change. And it was a chapter I had a long heart-to-heart with my editor about because here again, who invests? People with money to invest. And is it crass to suggest that you can profit from the earth going to hell? And in the end, the answer was yes, there should be this chapter. And yes, you should invest for the simple reason that when you make money, you are investing in companies that are trying to make the world better for everybody. You're trying to invest in the companies that are leading the decarbonization. So the advice from my experts is invest in things. Don't, don't think electric cars. Everybody's going to think electric cars. Think higher upstream. There are only four companies in the world that make the car batteries in electric cars. They're all in Asia and they're all public and you can invest in them. Panasonic, Samsung, LG, Ampex. Um, or think even farther upstream, invest in a lithium mining company. All the batteries are made of lithium. So invest in the companies that are going to profit handsomely from every single car company in the world, switching entirely to electric cars, including unbelievably General Motors. Um, you can invest in water. As we've said, water is going to become a dire problem for countries all over the world. There are countries that make make desalinization equipment that do, um, you know, infrastructure and pipes, those companies will do well. Um, Overall, these kinds of investments are already creaming traditional investments, not just the S&P, but if you look at the energy funds, that is the coal and petroleum industry, those investments from four years ago, you you would be down about 10%. But had you invested in some of these clean energy uh, stocks and funds, you'd be up 60% over four years. So they are, it's no longer a thing like invest to do good. You won't make as much money, but you'll feel good. It's not that anymore. <laughs> invest to do good and to make money and to help the planet. Well, that's very well said. We got seven minutes. I'm going to jump around a little bit to bring in more members of the audience. This is for Wei Tai. Oh, and you're cooking. Uh, Why is there so much resistance to electric cooking? I have always used electric cooking, but many people believe cooking with gas is better. Just like me with barbecue, you know, there's different methods that you can use and we all have what we've grown up with and our favorite ways of cooking. How do do you answer that? Well, uh, I love when you just said that word, cooking with gas. Isn't that like a slogan in America that now you're cooking with gas like that was a good thing? And that slogan actually was no accident because uh, some of you may not know that I'm a marketing executive and an advertising executive in my past life. And so I worked with a lot of slogans and campaigns. And that was a campaign by the Gas Association in the 70s to try to move people away from electricity and to embrace gas. So they came up with words like clean gas or clean coal and all these things. Those are marketing campaigns that have really stuck deeply in our culture and society in America and that, you know, provide resistance when people think that the elite professional cooktops are gas cooktops, right? And that, of course, the radiant electric ones that my mom cooked on, those are slow. And sure, that's a different electric technology than the induction cooktop electric technology that I was talking to about and that the listener might be using. So even within electric, and I like to say electromagnetic, because that's something newer, uh, but we do have to change the culture in our thinking to move from gas to something better and aspire to some better technologies. I think we have to change people's minds, but that's a great comment that it, it's, it's not just the, the performance that's going to matter. We have to do some cultural shifts in our cooking. Well, and to your point about marketing and cultural shifts, if you see star chefs or the Gordon Ramsay's of the world using those stoves, I think you can see, uh, or you would likely see minds begin to change. And, and Wei Tai, so getting back to my question about how is that beneficial for emissions so as I understand it, your electric cooktop is something like an electric car in that many people will still get their power from the grid, which is still partly powered by fossil fuels. But the farther we go into the future, the more of the grid's power 
will come from wind and solar, right? So, so your investment in that car or that cooktop will get cleaner and cleaner over time because the grid is getting cleaner and cleaner? That's right. <clears throat> so you don't even have to, like me, have solar panels on your roof, but out on the grid, like in California, we have a mandate that by 2045, all grid electricity must be carbon free. And so the state is on a trajectory to clean up all the electrons coming to your house, whether they go into your electric vehicle or onto my uh, induction cooktop. Well, last question, and then we'll go to closing thoughts. Practical question for the panelists. What car do you drive? Has climate change affected your car purchasing? I, I'll start out. Uh, I, I Well, my wife drives a Tesla. And uh, before that, we had a uh, BMW, the uh, i3, the small EV. So we were relatively early adopters to EV. The issue we always had was range. The Tesla solved that. But those early BMW models, we'd only get you know, 80, 90 miles of range uh, in reality. But uh, David or, or Wei Tai? Uh, yeah, I have a Tesla Model 3. Uh, three years now without a single service visit. This thing doesn't have spark plugs or cylinders or catalytic converter or a tailpipe or oil filters or oil changes. It doesn't have those components. Um, uh, an electric motor has 200 parts compared to a gas engine, which has 20,000 parts. So uh, there's just nothing to it. Super simple. Of course, the acceleration, everybody knows. It's like a roller coaster. It's like the most fun car to drive. Um, I got uh, $7,500 from the government to buy my Tesla. Thank you. And $3,000 from Connecticut. Thank you. Um, and I understand that in the Senate subcommittee on the next bill, they are proposing extending and expanding those rebates for electric cars uh, so that it'll be $7,500 plus $2,500 if it was made in America, plus another $2,500 if it was made by a union operating uh, car company. So, uh, oh, and there won't be any cap on how many rebates per car company. Like Tesla cars no longer get the $7,500 from the federal government because that car company has exceeded 200,000 cars, but the government currently wants to eliminate that limit. So uh, anyway, so I saved money on the car. I saved money. Obviously, I haven't bought gas in three years. I saved money on repairs and maintenance. There hasn't been any, and I have the most fun driving ever. So David, you are walking encyclopedia. I, <laughs> you got all the facts down. I bore everybody in sight. I'll just say that I uh, have a 2012 Nissan Leaf, and it get, used to get almost 100 miles of range per charge, and it's down to about 40 miles of range. But I still, that's fine for local driving, and I still use it for 80 or 90 percent of my my uh, my transportation. And uh, so I have to think of what's my next car. Yeah, I swear, if you didn't answer with an EV for what you drive, Wei Tai, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> uh, Wei Tai, do you have last comments for our viewers to share? Well, I, this has been such an enjoyable and educational piece of, uh, and fun fun to do. I would just say uh, my my experience has been just taking one small step at a time and doing a couple of the actions out of a book like what David's written has really uplifted me and, and given me hope that we will actually solve the climate crisis and prepare for climate change at the same time uh, with, with, within my lifetime. And, uh, and that, that gives me a sense of hope for my children. Uh, thank you, Wei Tai. And David, do you have closing thoughts to share as well? Well, I just want to thank you and the, the Commonwealth Club for letting us have this chance to talk about this unsung half of how we should respond to the changing climate, which is personal preparation. Governments and industries are doing adaptation all the time. They're building seawalls and they're moving the agricultural regions north. But, you know, as an individual, you're not going to build a seawall this weekend. So there are things that you can do. Think about what you would do about power and water in an emergency. Have a meeting with your family. What would you do if you were scattered during an emergency and the cell network was down, which by the way, it always does in wildfires and hurricanes. Um, anyway, just things to think about. And finally, I, I had one other thought I would mention. I asked the publisher 
there are heat people dying from heat waves right now uh, in the West Coast. Seven hundred and fifty people have died in these heat waves. Can we release the heat wave chapter from the book for free in phone readable or PDF format? And bless their hearts, they said sure. So if it just email me pogue at me dot com and I'll send you um, the heat wave chapter. And then in a couple of weeks, we're also going to offer the wildfire chapter for free um, because darn it, you need to prepare for heat waves and wildfires. Um, you need to think about it now. Uh, so pogue at me.com. Be happy to send you those chapters or, uh, or mail you one of the book plates. Thank you so much, David. And unfortunately for us in California and so many folks across the country, uh, both of those topics are very relevant. Um, and it's, it's certainly appreciated to share that with your with our viewers and with readers out there. Uh, our huge thanks to David Pogue and Wei Tai Kwok for joining us today and discussing David's new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change. We'd also like to thank you, everyone in the audience, for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in making virtual programming come to life, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Ahmad Thomas from the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Thank you all once again. Stay safe out there and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.